Hi everybody, Jackson Michael of The Game Before the Money here and announcing that The Game Before the Money is now a national radio program that airs on over 75 stations on the Sports Map radio network every Saturday morning from 11 a.m. to noon Eastern. That's 10 a.m. to 11 Central. And you can listen on your local SportsMap Radio affiliate or at SportsMapRadio.com. The format is a little bit different than the podcast, but don't worry. I'm still going to post podcast episodes specifically like I have been doing, getting in-depth with Legends of the Game. I've got one coming up that I'm working on with Bob Stein, who was a member of the Super Bowl Four champion Kansas City Chiefs. So a lot's going to be staying the same. And in addition to that, you'll be getting additional content as I'll be posting the Game Before the Money radio show through the Game Before the Money podcast channel. This first episode aired on July 2nd, 2022. Upton Bell was the guest on the show. He talked about Hugh McElhenney and also gave his rundown of the greatest tight ends of all time. I spoke a little bit about Marlon Briscoe, as well as some things I'll be looking for heading into the 2022 NFL season. Upton and I also recorded some great content about the NFL and World War II, and you'll either hear that in a future podcast and or it will air as part of the Game Before the Money radio show. Thanks so much to all of you great listeners out there, and I hope you enjoy the radio show which is meant to connect the past, present, and future of pro and college football. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the game before the money. I am Jackson Michael. With me is Upton Bell. And in this segment, we're going to be remembering an NFL legend who passed away this past week, Hall of Famer Hugh McElhenney best known as a part of the San Francisco 49ers million dollar backfield. He also was a member of the very first Minnesota Vikings team and played in the 1963 NFL championship game for the New York Giants. Upton's father, Burt Bell, was NFL commissioner during the 1950s and the glory days of Hugh McElhenney's career. Upton, what are your memories of the man that they called the king. There were two kings in 1950s America. There was Elvis Presley, and then there was the great Hugh Michael Henney, who after four games as a rookie in 1952, Michael, actually was dubbed the king by Frankie Albert, the quarterback at that time of one of the greatest backfields in history. And the reason he was dubbed the king was, to me, when you think, of the great ballet dancers, when you think of Rishnikov or Nureyev or people like that. This guy, his feet never touched the ground. Once I saw him run like 30 yards to one sideline, run 30 yards back to the other sideline, run back again to the sideline, and finally found another opening and ran 15 more yards. I've never seen any running back, maybe with the exception of Gale Sayers, had the moves that this guy had, had the touch he had, 
it almost looked like he played for 15 years as a rookie. And that's why Frankie Albert, the great quarterback of that time with that great backfield said, after only four games, he's the king. And he remained the king for the rest of his career, even though he finished with two other teams. And not only that, as a person, when you met him, he was delightful. But the, there was a kind of elegance to this guy, the way he played, the way he walked, the way he dressed. I mean, it was really amazing. And I will say this, of all the backs that I've seen from the middle 40s to today, there are many great ones, Jim Brown being probably the ultimate. This was the most graceful back I've ever seen. Yeah, and his when you watch his uh, highlights, and you can find some of them online, it's, a lot of his runs look almost like a long kickoff return because of the chaos he created on the field going back and forth. The only two running backs that I have seen in my time that I can think of who could do that were Eric Dickerson and, and Marcus Allen. Those are the only two guys that, that come to my mind personally. Well, I, I think both of them are, are, are perfect examples, but there was somebody in the beginning that kind of everybody tried to copy. It's funny, too, because Jim Brown could at times look like that. You know, everybody thinks of Jim Brown as a bruiser. He really was a guy that also he would hit the line, he would break a tackle, then he'd dance all over the place and head for, you know, 50, 60 yards. But this guy danced from the minute he got the ball. But those two people, I remember Dickerson very, very well, saw him play, interviewed him many times. And Marcus Allen with that great reverse run against against the Redskins in the in Super Bowl. Yeah, everybody remembers. But again, I can't. I think that McElhenney kind of reminds us, and hopefully the audience, of what the game has lost today. By opening it up, it's all passing. The running back is no longer important. If you saw those princes from the fifties until it really almost became extinct into the two thousands you would have seen some of the greatest things you've ever seen. And I always disagree with people who say, we don't need the running game anymore. Throw the ball three or four downs. Not true if you saw these people. Yes, I do agree with you. And I'm so thankful that I did get to see some of those great runners, getting to see Walter Payton, getting to see Earl Campbell. And I think in today's game, really Derek Henry kind of proves your point of how important the running game can be when you have an exceptional running back. Now, Hugh McElhenney, he played college football at the University of Washington. He also had an incredible college career. He ran for 296 yards in one game, and that is still, 70 years later, the University of Washington single game record. 70 years later. He also had a famous 100-yard punt return in college for a touchdown against USC. And the last man he beat on that play was Frank Gifford. I was fortunate enough to get to interview Hugh McElhenney via email, thanks to his family. And you can hear the stories that he shared on episode 45 of the Game Before the Money podcast. Hugh McElhenney was 93 years old when he passed away, 
but he was not the oldest living Hall of Famer. The oldest living Hall of Famer currently is Charlie Trippy, who is 100 years old. We also lost another NFL legend this week in Marlon Briscoe. Briscoe played quarterback for the Broncos in 1968 at a time when African-Americans weren't thought to be able to play quarterback in pro ball. Briscoe, however, as a rookie, and this is a crazy stat to think about, he threw twice as many touchdowns as a rookie as John Elway did for the Broncos in his rookie season of 1983. How about that for a stat? You can hear Broncos receiver Al Denson talk about playing with Marlon Briscoe and recall a game against the Raiders in which Al caught two touchdowns from Briscoe on episode 52 of the Game Before the Money podcast. In 1969, Marlon Briscoe, whose nickname was The Magician, was traded by the Broncos to the Buffalo Bills, who already had Jack Kemp as an established starting quarterback. Tom Flores was on that team. James Harris was on that team. And another quarterback named Dan Dara. So Briscoe was moved to wide receiver. And that was common for black quarterbacks to be moved to either receiver or defensive back in pro football during that period. Briscoe gained over 1,000 yards receiving for the Bills one season. That tells you what kind of an athlete he was. If you think about it, he was a quarterback in Denver his rookie year, actually led the American Football League in yards per completion, and then had over 1,000 yards receiving for the Bills just a couple of years later. Don Shula's Miami Dolphins later acquired Briscoe, and he played on the back-to-back Super Bowl champion Dolphins in 1972 and 1973. Now, a lot of people think that Marlon Briscoe was the first African-American quarterback in pro football. In actuality, however, there were a few pioneers who preceded him. George Talaferro, the first African-American drafted by an NFL team. He played quarterback in the AAFC in the 1940s for the Los Angeles Dons and later played quarterback in the NFL in the early 1950s. Willie Thrower? How about that for a name? He sparingly played quarterback for the Bears in 1953. After playing college ball at Michigan State, he was on the 1952 Spartans team that won the national championship. And Choo Choo Charlie Brackens, out of Prairie View A&M, played under the great Billy Nix there. And he also played quarterback in the NFL for the Green Bay Packers in 1955. He was out of Lincoln High School in Dallas, Texas, the same high school that Abner Hayes and Dwayne Thomas attended. Brackens was the first quarterback from an HBCU to play quarterback in the NFL. Going to play a little guitar for you as we go to break. If I'm not watching football, I'm probably playing guitar. So I'll do a little Scotty Moore impression in honor of the King, Hugh McElhenney. Coming up, I'll tell you what to watch for as a result of the Tyreek Hill and Devontae Adams trades. And Upton Bell will tell you who he thinks the two greatest tight ends in NFL history are on the game before the money. 
please visit thegamebeforethemoney.com. Welcome back to The Game Before the Money. And in this segment, I'm going to fill you in on what I'm watching for as a result of the Tyreek Hill and Devontae Adams trades. I'm going to discuss why this is such an exciting time in NFL history. And I'm also going to fill you in on what I think is one of the most important elements of football and yet one of the most overlooked. Okay, so we had two of the NFL's best receivers traded in the offseason. Devontae Adams traded from the Packers to the Raiders and Tyreek Hill from Kansas City to Miami. How is this going to affect all four teams? How is this going to affect those players? Here's some insight that Hall of Famer Ken Houston once gave me. He said, you're really not going to know until you see how these players fit into the team system. You know, some systems simply don't match a player's skill set. Great coaches adjust for that, but you're not always going to see that, even at the NFL level. Now, I went back. I wanted to find an example of a leading receiver like Tyreek Hill moving from a great passing offense with one of the best quarterbacks in the league to another team. And I took a look at John Jefferson. He made some of the most beautiful catches in the NFL during his time. And he led the NFL in receiving in 1980. He played for the Chargers with quarterback Dan Fouts, a future Hall of Famer. He had a Hall of Fame teammate in Charlie Joyner at the other receiver position. Hall of Famer Kellen Winslow was at tight end. And he had a great coach, Don Coryell. Jefferson was traded to the Packers, who had Lynn Dickey at quarterback, a Hall of Fame receiver in James Lofton, and a pretty good tight end in Paul Kaufman. Jefferson didn't flourish with the Packers like he did with the Chargers, but he was an above-average receiver for several years. As for the Chargers, and here's where it gets super interesting and surprising, they replaced Jefferson with the talented, very talented Wes Chandler and made the playoffs the next two seasons. And then they never made the playoffs again during Dan Fouts' career, which lasted until 1987. Now, I'm not going to make any predictions based off this, but I am going to keep it in the back of my mind because those Chargers were great. Nobody could have seen that playoff drought coming. Now, as for how Tyreek Hill might fare without Patrick Mahomes, there is historical context for that. In fact, he played two years before Mahomes was a starter. His second year, he had almost 1,200 yards and seven touchdowns with Alex Smith at quarterback. However, he hasn't played under any other system than Andy Reid's. So that's another thing I'll be paying attention to this year, especially since Miami has a brand new head coach in Mike McDaniel, who has no prior head coaching experience in the NFL. Andy Reid had a ton of experience before his Kansas City tenure. Now, I want to make clear, I'm not saying this is a bad situation for Tyreek Hill, but I'm pointing out from fan to fan, these are some things to watch for and to think about as the season gets underway. As for Devontae Adams, here's what's super interesting to me about him going to the Raiders, who have a great receiving tight end at Darren Waller. As awesome as Aaron Rodgers is, and for all the numbers he's put up, he's not really a throw-to-the-tight-end guy. According to Pro Football Reference, in the 11 games that Waller played last year, he had more targets than any Packer tight end has had over Aaron Rodgers' entire career in a single season. 
Now, some of you might be saying, what about Robert Tanyan? Yes, he had 11 touchdowns a couple of years ago, and that was great in fantasy football. And I love fantasy football. But overall, Rodgers seems to favor receivers over tight ends. In fact, it's hard for me to remember an elite quarterback in this heavy passing era who uses tight ends less than Aaron Rodgers. And that's not a critique, just an unscientific observation. So what are we looking for here as we watch the Raiders? Well, generally the strong safety is responsible for the tight end. With a guy like Waller, he's likely going to need some help. So you've only got 11 guys on defense. So if you rush four and the Raiders are using three wideouts and Darren Waller, well, that's eight guys on your defense already used up. If your strong safety needs help, well, now you're down to two players left and you still have only one guy on Devontae Adams. This is something that's really interesting to me, how defenses are going to approach the Raiders this year. If Waller stays healthy and Hunter Renfro continues on his path, the Raiders' passing game could be really fun to watch. Later in the show, Upton and I are going to talk about the greatest tight ends of all time, so you'll get a former GM's take on who that might be. Okay, so why is this such an exciting time in NFL history? Well, there are a lot of great quarterbacks who have recently retired or are about to retire. And those of you who have been reading the game before the money.com since I first published my QB reality blog post in 2014 probably have seen my writing about how few quarterbacks have won the Super Bowl. After Matthew Stafford won it with the Rams last year, the total is only 34 quarterbacks in NFL history have ever won the Super Bowl. And the number who even make the conference championship game, especially in the AFC, is really low. Every single championship game since 1999 has included one of only six quarterbacks. Brady, Manning, Roethlisberger, Steve McNair, Rich Gannon, or Patrick Mahomes. At least one of those six guys has played in every single AFC Championship game since 1999. But there's a new crop coming in, and this is what's so exciting. Yeah, Joe Burrow, Mahomes, of course, Josh Allen, Justin Herbert, Mac Jones. Note that a lot of promising quarterback prospects are coming in the AFC. Add Tua to that list now that he has Tyreek. Watching the AFC play out over the next few years could be just incredible because we're witnessing the changing of the guard and the changing of an era at the quarterback position. This also includes the NFC because Rodgers, Brady, even Stafford. Who's next in line? Is it going to be Dak Prescott, Justin Fields, Jalen Hurts? There's an opportunity right now for a younger quarterback to hit that higher echelon. Moments like these are really fun to watch because there's so much possibility. Look at when Brady and Manning came into the league. Elway retired. Aikman retired, Steve Young, Dan Marino. These guys were all winding up their careers as Manning, Brady, and Drew Brees came in. So now we're kind of seeing the same thing. The question is, who are going to be the guys who are going to claim those top spots? The same thing happened in the early 70s. Johnny Unitas retired, Bart Starr retired, Sonny Jurgensen. At the same time, you had Terry Bradshaw come in, Roger Staubach, 
Ken Stabler, and then that class of 71 with Jim Plunkett, Dan Pastorini, and Archie Manning. And that 70s decade became one of the greatest in all of football history. Are we entering the next great period? Well, that's one of the reasons why we watch. And that's another reason to really pay attention to see how things are going to shake out and if Kansas City is going to be able to maintain. Can Buffalo or the Titans get over the hump and into the Super Bowl? Can Stafford win two straight and maybe go out like Elway and change the entire legacy of his career? It's fun to watch the NFL week to week, but it can be really beautiful and amazing when you start watching it in terms of eras. Because one day, we're all going to look back on this and define it somehow, just like we define the 70s with the Cowboys-Steelers Super Bowls and the past 15 years with the Patriots dynasty and the amazing Brady-Manning-Roethlisberger showdowns. Last year's Buffalo-Kansas City game and the subsequent AFC Championship game I mean, that could be just the start of that whole thing between those three teams, especially with those quarterbacks. Now, I know I've talked a lot about quarterbacks, and here's why. And this is my own personal, unscientific observation. Leadership at the quarterback position is the single most overlooked and unquantifiable aspect of the game. I'm going to give you an example of how to think about this And it's really made me appreciate the game at a different level. You look at the great quarterbacks, and I mean the true greats. Unitas, Starr, Montana, Brady. Every player that stepped on a championship field with those guys didn't just believe they could win with them. They knew it. I always tell people this, and I'd love to ask Tom Brady or someone else on the Patriots about it sometime. The most important play in the Super Bowl against Atlanta was when Brady ran for a first down. Atlanta had scored on their last possession and the score was 28-3. to Less than five minutes left in the third quarter. Brady ran for a first down on third and eight. I said to the person next to me, Brady just told his team that he still thinks that they can win this game. And I don't think Atlanta understands the magnitude of this. New England scored on that drive, and Atlanta never scored the rest of the game. And that's what I'm talking about. Undefinable, unquantifiable, but that's leadership at the quarterback position. Now, how did I learn to watch for that? Dan Neal taught me. He played on the Broncos with John Elway, and he told me that in the Super Bowl against the Packers, Elway did the same thing. He ran for a first down, took that famous helicopter hit, And Dan Neal told me that after that, the whole sideline just had this extra fuel. They were going to win that game no matter what. Again, that's NFL leadership. That's what I'm talking about here. And that's what I hope you look for when you watch games from now on. And it happens at the college level too. I'm going to look for moments during the season to point these things out. And hopefully it's going to elevate your enjoyment of the game. And that's really why the show exists to hopefully give you a better understanding of what goes on from perspectives from the players themselves and people like Upton Bell, who owned a World Football League team, worked for Don Shula, and was general manager of the New England Patriots. And he's going to give you a rundown of who he thinks the greatest tight ends in history are. Coming up next, 
on the Game Before the Money on the Sports Map Radio Network. Jackson Michael back here with Upton Bell on the Game Before the Money. Upton worked for the Baltimore Colts in the 1960s under head coach Don Shula. He was director of player personnel when the Colts won Super Bowl V. He later became general manager of the Patriots. So he knows great NFL talent when he sees it. Upton, you wanted to fill us in on who you see as the two greatest tight ends in NFL history. And I've seen them all. And I, I picked originally John Mackey, who was drafted in the second round, not the first round, out of Syracuse by us in 1963, Don Shula's first year. He was a running back at Syracuse and a great athlete and a terrific lacrosse player. But nobody knew where to put them. And so you look at his size, and, and even today he wouldn't be that small. He was six two and a half, probably 225, amazing speed. Even today he would be fast. And so he came in, and they developed him in to what I thought was the first tight end that could block in close, like you would see Rob Gronkowski, but also you could slightly spread him out, not as much as today. That they do with the tight ends and 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 completely different he and gronkowski were the two best blocking tight ends i've ever seen number one number two mackie because he was originally a running back was one of the best running tight ends i've seen once he caught that ball and i told you the other day if people are listening to the show if you go back to 1966 colts at the lions and you'll see maybe one of the most amazing plays you've ever seen where John Mackey catches a short pass and threads like eight or nine people on his way to a touchdown. Being he and I used to play basketball. You can never get a player to do that today uh, because of the fear of injury. He was so good that he would come out on the weekends in the offseason, and he and I and a group of people would play pickup basketball. <laughs> he could do everything. He could dunk it. He, you name it. When I look at Grankowski, who I believe, by the way, Michael, will be back. With him, he again changed the game. 6'6", 240, 250. You put him inside, he can cave a line in. You put him outside, he can make the big play. He can run through people. He's had terrible injuries. If he didn't play for the last two years, I still would have picked him and Mackey. And maybe I give him the slight edge, not much, because of the injuries. Who knows? He probably could have played physically really well for another three or four years if it wasn't for all the injuries that he got. Amazing athlete. But those two are the best I've ever seen. And I started all the way back to actually Mike Ditka, who was really the first name, how the game had changed. Both of those. He would be able to play in those days. Mackey could play today because he had the speed to go inside or outside and crush people. Now, the other thing that uh, a very famous scout said a while ago, the problem today, the tight ends that are coming in from college, they don't want to block anybody. They want to catch the football. They see Kelsey and they see Kittle and they see all these other big guys going and they're saying, 
No way I want to get hit. I just catch the ball. So that's the big difference. Both those guys did it better than any tight ends I've ever seen. Catch it and block it. Yeah, when I think of tight ends, I think a lot of times of clutch plays on third down and getting that tough first down in big situations. And the two guys that I personally think of that I would want on my team picking any tight ends of all time, if I needed a first down, I would pick Mark Bavaro and I would pick Jay Novacek. Those were the two clutch guys to me. I, I like Bavaro a lot, and I think that he belongs in the Hall of Fame. And the reason that he isn't is he doesn't have gaudy numbers. He's among the best blockers I've ever seen at that position. I agree with you there. Uh, in Parcell's offense, they didn't throw the ball as much, of course, as all these guys have today. If they'd thrown the ball, he would have been a first ballot Hall of Famer. Didn't get the ball enough, but he could catch in the clutch. So I wouldn't quite put him in that position of, for instance, Gonzalez, who to me wasn't a blocker. He's really basically like a basketball player. Kelsey, incredible. Absolutely incredible clutch. George Kittle might be the closest to a guy. If I wanted a complete tight end, I would sign George Kittle. Well, now, of current tight ends, the guy I look at, to me, who, who can do the most damage is Darren Waller of the Raiders. I want to see more of him. To me, the, these guys that we're talking about, either in the Hall of Fame or will be, both Kittle and Kelsey will be in the Hall of Fame. Different type of people. I always say because the position requires, particularly if you're going to both block and catch, requires you to have enough longevity to get in there. And the, the position has really kind of changed. So my kind of background for it is I want somebody that can do both. Understanding those days are over. But I also want some longevity. If you look at Gronk, through all the injuries, he's played more time than I ever thought he would play. And so that's why he qualifies. But But any one of these people Today, because the tight end has been so redefined, people that are listening to us, they want to see them catch the ball. That's the way the game is going. Right. And and when you talk to a lot of people, I think if we polled a lot of people, and you can hit us up on social media on Twitter, at Upton Bell and at Game Before Money, you know, a lot of people are probably going to say that to them, the best tight end that they've seen is Tony Gonzalez or Jason Witten just based on their catch numbers. And those are both excellent tight ends. Why would you pick Mackey and Gronk over somebody like Gonzalez or, or Witten? Two all-timers as well. I want somebody that is equally as good at blocking as receiving, who is a threat at any time to go all the way, which both of them, Mackey and he were. I, but I also want, because remember, what the tight end does for the offense originally, and I'm going back to a guy that people never heard of that's in the Hall of Fame that I saw play all his career, PPOs of the Philadelphia Eagles. They weren't called tight ends then. You know what they're called? Closed ends. But he was a ferocious blocker. And when they needed it, he could make the big catch. So it's been redefined, and it's understandable. 
people who play fantasy football, people who watch all the TV today, they just want to see spectacular things. If I'm a coach, I want to be lucky enough, which Belichick was, to have a guy that can do both. Because one of the things I don't have to worry about, if my tackle isn't really good or just decent, and I've got a tight end like a, a Mackey or a Gronkowski or a Kelsey, I know that guy can take up the slack for maybe, and sometimes they keep them in to block for pass protection. I know that those guys can do both. You know how much easier my day is going to be if I've got a guy that can do that besides put them out there? Every coach wants somebody like that, and they're rare. So like the mountain lion, they are rare. And talking about rare, I want to talk about one other tight end who I think had the greatest single game performance that I've seen from a tight end in my memory. And that's Kellen Winslow in the 1981 AFC divisional playoff, the epic in Miami between San Diego and Miami. I could tell you about him because he did change the game. Air Coriel, Don Coriel, who does belong in the Hall of Fame. No, he never won a championship, but he changed the game. Air Coriel was amazing. That game, by the way, I called Shula afterwards and I said, how, how could your defense let that guy do what he did, which was amazing? I mean, how many times Miami had to come back and then San Diego would go ahead and he would make every – do you remember – He was so exhausted at the end of the game, they had to practically carry him off the field. Well, and he did so much in that game. He even blocked a field goal attempt. When was the last time you saw a tight end block a field goal? Never. But that, he he changed the game with Air Coriel, and then everybody was looking for somebody like that. As they say, the NFL is, is the ultimate copycat league. If you show me a Winslow and uh, you can put him out there, he can block sometimes and he can catch the ball 20 times a game or something like you say, oh, I got to get me one of them. I, you know, I used to hear the coaches in the meeting say the famous line, Upton, why can't you go out and scout and find somebody like him? I'd say, those people are rare <laughs> gems. Stop thanking <laughs> me. They're not there. All right, and one other tight end to ask you about who uh, was a great Hall of Fame tight end known for his receiving skills. But I thought as a youngster, I thought he was a great blocker, and that's Ozzie Newsom. Uh, he, he, could be, he could be either. Great speed, good enough, could at times really be. People were so enticed by his physical ability to get open and catch the football. That's what happens. When you're a talented, so talented in one area, even though he was a good blocker, and he is in the Hall of Fame. He, by the way, should be in the Hall of Fame as an executive, too, the way he built the Ravens. But he was so good at catching the football, and that's the real danger with coaches. I've sat in those rooms and watched them talk about it say, oh, uh, you know what? They'll say to the receiver coach, I don't want him hitting anybody. I don't want him injured. Don't put him in there. I don't want him blocking people. I need him for my offense. And that was the curse of Ozzie Newsom. He's one of the best. But 
people wanted him as a receiver. He had great speed. He could break tackles. He was a good blocker, but the coach decides what you're going to be. You don't decide what you're going to be. And if they see that speed, what's today? Today is the NFL at the at the pen relays. Everything's a track meet. That's fine. It's spectacular to watch. But you as a player even have less chance to convince that coach, geez, coach, I want to go in there and I want to block. And the coach will say, what are you talking about? You're going to be flexed out. The other interesting thing about the tight ends that they haven't developed, they'll have them out of the backfield. They'll have them in running plays. Any way you can take that person that used to be, have to do both and get him involved in the offense, that's what you're going to do. And that's what happened to Newsom. Too talented as a receiver, really a good blocking tight end. But what's the first thing you think about with Ozzie Newsom? A 20-yard, 30-yard reception. Yeah, running away from people. That's the way it is in the film room. For people, again, who are listening today, you're in there with the coaches. Remember, the coaches carry their own prejudice in, into the room. Geez, I don't like the way this guy is hitting him. I, I don't know. Let's, let's, let's flex him out. I don't want him in there. I don't want him hurt. Right. Coaches don't want their star receiving tight ends injured while blocking on a running play that gains two yards. All right, after the break, we're going to close this inaugural edition of the Game Before the Money on the Sports Map Radio Network. All right, well, I sure have enjoyed this first episode of the Game Before the Money, and I hope you have as well. And remember, Upton Bell picking the top two tight ends of all time. In his opinion, Rob Gronkowski and John Mackey. You can tweet to us who yours might be at Game Before Money and at Upton Bell on Twitter. You know, Hall of Fame strong safety Ken Houston talked about him earlier in the program. He said that Bob Trumpy was one of the toughest tight ends he played against. He also mentioned Raymond Chester. So maybe those are a couple of guys that you would pick Todd Christensen. Of course, I can hear all you Raiders fans out there bringing his name up too. He was a tough tight end for sure. And of course, who can forget Raiders legend Dave Casper. My name is Jackson Michael. You can find me at thegamebeforethemoney.com and really looking forward to spending this season with you. We're going to run through Super Bowl Sunday. You're going to hear some great, fantastic NFL history stories. And we're going to go through the season together. We're going to watch. We're going to enjoy how things unfold because nobody knows. Despite all of the magazines, all the shows, everybody trying to predict what happens, nobody knows. And that's what's awesome about sports and particularly football, because even when they line up at the line of scrimmage, nobody knows what's going to happen. The offense knows the play, the defense kind of guessing at it, but nobody really knows what's going to happen. So happy 4th of July. Hope you have a fantastic 
holiday, safe holiday, enjoy the nation's birthday. And again, please check out the game before the money.com. There's also the game before the money podcast. And I also host the Texas sports hall of fame podcast. And also be sure to check out Upton Bell's book present at the creation. A lot of fantastic stories in there published by the university of Nebraska press. That's also the publisher for the book, the game before the money. As Hall of Fame quarterback Bobby Lane once said, I never lost a game. I just ran out of time. We're out of time here, but we'll see you next week on the Game Before the Money. Thank you.